You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. We begin today's episode with the question, Is Jesus shepherd or sheep? This question occurred to me one day recently while I was at work. I was walking down the hall at my Catholic hospital, and as I was rounding the hall, I saw a statue of Jesus. I had seen this statue many times before, but on this particular day, I really saw it. Something about it prompted me to stop and consider it. Jesus stands dressed as a shepherd in simple robes gripping a staff, and cradled around his neck rests a feeble-looking sheep. Head tipped down, Jesus gazes tenderly at the sheep. And that's when the question came to me, is Jesus shepherd or sheep? And just then, I heard the answer, which was, well, it depends, because there is no is. By this, I mean that the question is invalid. Asking whether Jesus is this or that is an extra-biblical question, meaning a question that we, outside the biblical text, impose upon it. When we are dealing with biblical literature, our source for all that we know about Jesus, he is depicted in different ways in different books. There is no fixed is. There is no one description of Jesus. There are four gospel books, each with its own unique themes, motifs, and imagery around Jesus and his story. In order for us to understand these books, we must resist our desire to pin Jesus down with is. We want him to fit our preconceptions, our ideas about him. Is, the way we use and understand it today, does not apply in the Bible. Let us discuss this matter and start with the fundamentals, with grammar. The word is, is, you can't get around this word, the third person singular present indicative of the word be, as in to be. It comes from the Proto-Indo-European root s, which means to be. The ancestors of is in English are the Greek esti and the Latin est. The word is is a verb. What is a verb? 
A verb is a word that shows action, occurrence, or states of being. So you might say that is is the ultimate verb. By this I mean that it can express all three, action, occurrence, and state of being. Now, I don't intend to go down a grammar rabbit hole here. The bottom line is that the word is has to do with states of being. And this is how we understand and use the word is. We speak in this way. We say, this car is fast. The sky is blue. She is a nice lady. He is a farmer. In our minds, when we speak these sentences, we understand these expressions as identities. And these expressions have an immutable quality. When we say, she is a nice lady, it functions like a kind of brand, something fixed. She is a nice lady becomes an identity that's established in our mind. We don't tend to notice it. It's silently assumed. And we impose this mindset, this way of understanding is as an identity on the biblical text. But the biblical text was not crafted, not written with this mindset. The biblical writer's mindset could not be more different. Let's look a bit closer at language. In the language of the Old Testament, biblical Hebrew, there is no word for is or to be, which are expressions of time and also identity. I am, I was, I will be. Is, as an expression of existence, allows us to speak conceptually, to speak abstractly. An abstract concept is an idea that has no physical form. Is, as in the existence of something, is a building block of philosophy, and you might add psychology to that. These subjects have to do with what is mental, our thoughts and ideas about our existence. Biblical Hebrew verbs have not to do with time or identity, but with action, complete or incomplete action, and its expressions are found in tangibles, that which has a physical form. It is a concrete and not an abstract language. Consider the word anger in English. Anger is an abstract word, a state of being. In biblical Hebrew, the word for anger is af, which literally means nose, as in the nose on your face, as in the way that our nostrils flare when we're angry. We hear a description of God's anger in Psalm 18, verse 18. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. This is classic imagery. We have the loud, thundering Zeus and his fury in Hesiod's Theogony. We imagine Zeus red-faced, with flaring nostrils and gritted teeth, upright and poised to launch his lightning bolt. The biblical writer is using the same imagery. God's anger is his nose, its nostrils flared with rage. There are two excellent sources for more on this topic of how biblical Hebrew works and how it is different from Indo-European languages. One is the work of Jeff Benner. Mr. Benner is the author of books, articles, and a website on biblical Hebrew and the mechanics of the language. 
The other is the vast body of scholarship, including books, articles, audio commentaries, and podcasts of Father Paul Tarazi. You can Google them both. This distinction between concrete and abstract expressions in language is critical, and we will discuss this in an upcoming episode on translations of the Bible. So the point I'm making here is that the Bible was crafted in a language that does not have the word is, and it has no matching equivalent. So how can we apply an is question to a text whose language doesn't have that word? Now, the language of the New Testament, in which we find the books, which speak about Jesus, is Greek. Greek, unlike Biblical Hebrew, is abstract. It is the language which birthed philosophy. It is the philosophical language. Our understanding of reality today comes from this ancient language. But hang on, here's the twist. In the Bible, in the hands of the New Testament writers, the Greek language and its mindset, its way of speaking abstractly about existence and identity, is subverted. It is made to function like Biblical Hebrew. The content of the New Testament, though written in the Greek language, deals in tangibles and in action. It is doingness, not beingness. It's what Father Paul Tarazi in his scholarship so often refers to as function. Let me give you an example from the New Testament Gospel Book of John. This is an instance wherein the New Testament Greek is rendering the Biblical Hebrew mindset, not the Greek philosophical mindset. Consider the book of John chapter 10 verse 11. In John chapter 10 verse 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Presumably, this verse was the inspiration for the sculptor of the shepherd Jesus statue that stands in my hospital hallway. The word life here is the English translation of the Greek word psyche. We know this word in English as psyche. It is very interesting that the writer is using the word psyche. The Greek word for life is zoe, but the writer is not using zoe. The writer uses the word psyche. Now, in the Greek language and mindset, under the influence of Platonic philosophy, the word psyche has the meaning of soul, S-O-U-L. Plato's theory of the soul is well known. He considered the soul to be the essence of a person, and that his soul would continue to exist after death. Incidentally, our understanding of the immortality of the soul comes from Plato, not from the biblical text. Now, the New Testament writer in John 10.11 does not use psyche this way. He is applying another definition, which is to breathe, or to blow. The word psihi comes from the word psiho, which means to blow, to breathe. Breathing is a physical sign that something is alive. This is what I mean by a concrete expression. When breathing stops, one ceases to live. The writer is not interested in speaking abstractly about life. He is not interested in the understanding of psihi as immortal soul. 
The writer is talking about psyche as one who breathes and is therefore alive. The verse reads that the good shepherd gives his breath and therefore his life for the sheep. How about the Old Testament? The word psyche in the Old Testament in the Septuagint Greek is used the same way as in our New Testament example, John 10.11. Psyche in the Septuagint Greek is the translation of the biblical Hebrew noun nephesh, which means something that breathes. Let's consider two examples from two well-known verses from two Old Testament books. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 19, we hear, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. In the English, we have living creature. This is the translation of the Hebrew. And the Hebrew here is nefesh hayah. Nefesh means that which breathes a breathing creature. Hai means life, something alive. Now let's compare that to the Greek translation of this same verse. The Greek translation of the Hebrew nefesh haya is psihin zosan, living breath. So the Greek translator understood the Hebrew word nefesh and chose the word psihi to render it. Nefesh and psihi mean the same thing a thing that breathes, and by extension, or deduction, something that lives. Can you hear how this is concrete? It has a physicality to it. It's what the body does. Consider another example from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. We hear, And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Life shall go for life is the English translation of the Hebrew nefesh ben nefesh, breathing one for breathing one. And how does the Greek translate this word nefesh in this verse? Yes, you guessed it, psihi. Psihin anti psihis. Breathing one for breathing one. Nefesh and psihi, as used by the biblical writer, mean the same thing. In the biblical text, life is expressed as breathing, both in Hebrew and in Greek. So my point is, in the biblical text, the Greek word psihi means breath, not soul, the way Plato uses it in his writing, which is the way we use it today. Applied today, psyche is the root of our word psychology, which we define as the study of the mind, the non-tangible. The biblical text, its imagery and metaphors, are grounded in physical realities. So let's return again to the New Testament. Even though the New Testament is written in Greek, the quintessential philosophical language, the writer is using the Greek language, its words, to subvert its mindset, its philosophical point of view. It's a subtle yet clever critique. Recall what we are trying to understand. 
If we do not have the word is in the Bible, what do we have? We have function. Let's take a closer look at function and see how it works in the biblical text. You might call function a substitute for is. In the book of John, chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it means that he functions like a good shepherd in this particular verse, in this particular chapter, in this particular book. After this statement in verse 11, he doesn't stop talking to leave the scene to go tend the sheep. It's a metaphor. He's trying to explain his purpose in that particular scene in John chapter 10. More than that, he's teaching scripture. This imagery of shepherd and shepherd life comes from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Father Tarazi, in his commentary on the book of John, explains that the writer of John intended to link Jesus with Ezekiel chapter 34. The book of John chapter 10, Father Tarazi writes, presents Jesus as the, quote, fulfillment of Ezekiel's promise that in the last days, God will assign his good shepherd to take care of his flock in the place of all preceding shepherds who disregarded the needs of the sheep, unquote. Let us come back to this matter of function. Jesus functions in John chapter 10, verse 11, as a good shepherd. But elsewhere in the book of John, he functions differently. Function is the way of the entire corpus of biblical literature. In fact, function is the way of all literature. You have a text whose writer has fashioned it. He or she selects words and connects them in such a way as to communicate their message. Literature, story, is a collection of words which convey a meaning, and it is the way they are put together that expresses that meaning. That is to say, a single word is only meaningful when joined by other words. It has no fixed reality. It has no is. And in fact, the same word can express an opposite meaning, have a different connotation, depending on the context. Consider the biblical Hebrew word geut. You can find that in Strong's Concordance, H1348. It is translated as majestic. It means to rise up or swell up as with pride or arrogance. In the Bible, when it is applied to God, the word geut has a positive connotation. But when it is applied to either man or the elements, both of which are God's subjects, it has a negative connotation. In Psalm 93 verse 1, we hear, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. Read geut. The Lord is clothed, he has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Now, compare this to Psalm 89, verse 9, where we hear, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, read Geut, you still them. So we have the swelling, arrogant waves, put down, stricken, laid low by the majestic God. So what is the point here? The point is to teach us to humble ourselves before language. It is a complex matter. 
It is the relationships, the interplay between words that communicates meaning. And grammar rules. Words in a text are not fixed realities with immutable qualities. So let us apply this understanding to the New Testament because this is the way that the New Testament is crafted. Now back to my question, the question that came to me that day in the hospital hallway. Is Jesus shepherd or sheep? Let us turn to our source, the biblical text, for the answer. In John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. But that's ten chapters in. Early in the book of John, in chapter 1, verse 29, we hear the character John, whom we refer to as John the Baptist, call Jesus not a shepherd, but a sheep. In John's words, a lamb. We hear, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a few verses later, we hear John again repeat this. In chapter 1, verse 36, we hear, And he, John, looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So in the book of John, Jesus is both. He is depicted as shepherd and sheep under the control of the writer. The writer is using these metaphors to build his story, to build his argument. Now, if we turn to other New Testament books, Jesus is also likened to a shepherd in the books of Mark and Matthew and in the epistle 1 Peter. But in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 9, he's depicted as a Moses figure, as the lawgiver. In Luke chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus is referred to as a great prophet. And we have different depictions in the epistles. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Jesus as wisdom from God. Remember that the New Testament is not a biography of Jesus the way we understand biographies today. There are four gospel books, not just one. And though the books are similar in their story elements, they each have their unique way of telling their story. So, in biblical literature, I repeat, there is no is. We are introduced to Jesus when we hear the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and then we continue to hear more in the subsequent gospel books. We are bound by the ways Jesus is depicted in the text, and there is more than one depiction. Jesus has no fixed identity. He is not one thing that we can then build an image of to stand in a hallway or to carry around in our back pocket and ogle. No! Let us be aware of our assumptions. Our Jesus statues are what they are, a product of our imagination, a reflection of ourselves, of our longings and desires. My hope is that you will allow your questions, who is Jesus, to be invalidated. Let us cancel out our questions and open our ears to hear the biblical story, and allow that story, not ours, to form our understanding. 
Until next time, this is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.